the cancellation of vows. And at this point, I'm not really even certain, even after studying it and reading a lot of commentaries, I'm not exactly sure how this chapter fits into the overall flow of vows. It's possible, if you remember last week, we dealt with the inheritance of, I'll just put Zelophehad's daughters. Remember, they come, so you got the issue of women receiving the inheritance in the last chapter, or a couple chapters before. But, um, and it, it could possibly be, could possibly be that, this is just a guess, so I don't know this, but since the daughters of Zelophehad could themselves receive the inheritance, it, you might possibly think, does this, does this rule overthrow the general rule of male headship? So that's, that's my best guess as to why. That does, it, does it just like get rid of male headship because these daughters have the right to their own inheritance? Uh, it's, you know, having their dad's inheritance. And, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, Well, see, and that's what I was, I thought about, like, the idea of male headship has to, in its essence, lead us to Christ in his male headship over us. Uh, maybe he's the one who cancels our vows. <laughs> I don't know, I, but I don't want to jump. Th- I just, I just, in studying this, nothing really sunk so much in my heart that I was ready to say, oh, this is exactly why this is going on. So, um I don't think these are primarily private vows. I think they're, they're uh, public vows, maybe even vows of worship, uh, connected to worship, but I, I'm not sure about that. Um, anyway, let's just start reading and see what it says here. So verses 1 and 2 of Numbers chapter 30. Uh, can you pass that microphone to Ryan? Just 1 and 2? Uh, yeah, I could give you more here in a minute, but that's all you got right now. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Okay, so first off, what's the first basic uh, general rule about vows? You have to keep your vows. They're very binding, okay? So, so why, why are the keeping of vows important? That's number one, because we reflect God, and God keeps his vows. In fact, when you get to the... Um, the whole discussion of Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and, they're ta- and Paul's trying to figure out why so many Jews have failed to believe in Jesus Christ. He, his, he's emphatic. It's not as if God's word failed. It's not as if God didn't keep his vow, right? And if you get to the end of Romans 11, he then states in Romans eleven twenty five, all Israel will be saved. Now, we can work on how that actually works out and what that looks like, but Paul's emphatic because... God keeps his vows, and, and that's, the, that's the foundation of vow keeping. Uh, it, it reminds us of truth. When we think of truth, there are two aspects of truth. One is um, factual, and the other is faithful. So when I say that 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's a factual statement, and God is true in that sense, he's, he's all truth. There's no lies in God. Uh, everything that he, uh, you know, in his world, uh, it's facts are facts because God is tr- a truthful God. 
But the other side is that God keeps his word. So when God makes a promise, he always follows through and keeps it. He never breaks his promise. So that's where it says, I think in Hebrew, or Romans maybe, or Hebrews, where it is impossible for God to lie, right? I mean, he just will always keep his word. So here we are, the beginning um, is this is, uh, in fact, I would even argue that our whole salvation is dependent upon God keeping his promise, his vow, right? You believe that your sins are forgiven because Jesus died on the cross, but how do you know his death on the cross actually uh, enacts your forgiveness? Well, Jesus actually declares it and says, Father, forgive them, like he actually says it. Well, what if he doesn't keep his word? What if you get to heaven and he says, oh yeah, I told you I was going to forgive you, but I really didn't. You know, your whole salvation is dependent that he keeps his word. That's why vows are important. Um, Now, that being said, while this big picture keeping of vows is important, it's also important that you are not just an individual. We live in community. Okay? And because this, because you live in community, because your vows affect other people, uh, there's got to be some sort of an adjustment to this keeping of vows. Um, So what we see here, uh, what happens, this is the question, what happens when your vow comes into conflict with another law of the community? This is actually very helpful to us to understand how God's law works. Because, you know, we fight the fight that God's laws are absolute. And it's true. But remember that uh, there are multiple commands, and some of those commands can almost come into conflict with one another. So what's the law in the community that's going to come into conflict with individual commitment to keep your vow, it's that the law of that we are in families and that there's a male head in the family who's responsible for the family. Okay, so you've got you've got this, you know, male headship is coming into conflict with the individual command to keep your vow. Um clear on that? Following how that works? It's hard to it's a lot of times people don't ever think of the law as ever coming into conflict with one another, but in this case, it does. And they need, they need uh, to figure out what's going to happen. And so here God explains it to them. So three through five, do you still got your microphone, Ryan? I'll let you keep reading. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge, while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and her pledge, but she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. Okay, when it, that forgiveness there is not like forgiveness of sin, but forgive her for not keeping the vow, right? That's like it's, she's released from it. Okay, so what observations do you make in these three these yeah, three verses here? Any observations? Just looking at the text, just saying, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so so there is uh there's clear in here there's male headship in the home. And in this particular case it's father, right? Yeah, so this is Male headship of father. Later on, they're going to deal with husband. But in this situation, it's father. Um, Other observations? Right, so the male's vow is uh, he must keep it. That's good. Like uh, when he uh, acts, it's there. Uh, Yeah, okay. Right in verse, the very first verse, what does it assume? Women can do what? 
Yeah, women can make vows. I think that's pretty, you know, impressive. You know, there's, there's a dignity there. There's a, there's a, you know, yeah, they're allowed to make vows. And, and they're technically under the same must-keep rule as the, uh, the, the father would be, except when they come into conflict with one another, right? Uh, her vows are binding unless, unless what? Yeah, and, and when are they opposed by the father? Right, that immediately, right? He has to, he has to in a sense, revoke the vow upon hearing it, like immediately. If he doesn't do anything, then it's assuming that the vow's going to be binding, right? You see how that, that works. Um, <clears throat> so this scenario, I think, keeps us from, from uh, oh, if you got somebody over you, you can say anything you want. Like, you know, the woman shouldn't go around thinking, oh, I can say whatever I want, doesn't matter, because it's really what my husband says. No, right, she, she, would be, she would feel keenly that what comes out of her mouth is very important. You see how the, the, the tension between these two things is, hope I'm not losing you guys on this. Um, so you can't just have a rule, male headship, oh, negates all importance of vows. No, the woman's vows are very important. At the same time, you can't make her vows trump the male headship. And so those are coming into conflict with each other. Go ahead, Ken. Yep, yep. Well, just, yes, assuming that eventually she's going to get married, and so she's, yeah, I, I know in our society we have, I know I have a daughter who's 26 years old. She lives on her own. She, I don't have to, like, <laughs> uh, give veto on her vows at this point. She's her own person. I get that. Um, uh, even though she's not married, you know. Um, so there's a little bit different in cultural differences. In, like, in that day, though, a woman was usually attached to her father's house until she got married so that's it doesn't just mean correct and and I do think that sometimes uh this is just me trying to help give you guys back sometimes man a woman has to be under her father's authority until she gets married and if she's like 65 years old and she's not married yet she just she can't make any decisions for herself I just think that's taking this way too far <laughs> so um but um i do think that male headship in this particular case is given for the protection of the woman in this situation and i don't think it's a stretch to say that that christ as our covenant head protects us as well from foolish vows or things that we you know he's he, in a sense, is over us as our covenant head as well. He protects his church. Um, all right, let's keep going because I don't want to take too long. Six, the same point's going to be made over and over again. Six through nine. Um, let's see. Uh, Lily, would you like to read those for us? You don't have to. Okay. Larry, would you like to read six through nine? No. Okay. Ken, would you like to read six through nine? <laughs> Get somebody to do it. <laughs> If I can keep my screen open here. Oh, boy. See, this. get back to the paper, Ken. Uh, <laughs> Carry the Bible. <laughs> I wish I could. My Bible is print too small. <laughs> uh, starting with six. Uh-huh. Uh, if she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips, uh, of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it, and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes her makes void her vow that was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself and the Lord will forgive her. <clears throat> okay, so in this situation, it seems that the woman has already uh, taken a vow, 
And then she uh, comes to her uh, husband, future husband, and explains to him that this, this vow um, uh, she's under, and he, again, has the right to revoke the vow just like the, uh, the father uh, could do previously. So same kind of thing. It's just transferring it from father now to husband because, again, uh, households are important and the head of the household is important. So, um, yeah. Well, that's a good question. I, I just think that the, uh, again, I think that what's going on is that the the woman may not have considered how this may have affected her husband. Not that it's like a sinful vow or a bad vow, but she may not have thought through the full implications of this. You know, you could see a, this is a silly example, but you could see a couple kids on the school playground betting away their father's car. You know, and, and uh, you know, Dad, sorry, I bet the car away. Dad says, no, you didn't. You know, you didn't bet the car away. It's, it's, you can't do that. So there's this sense of this going on. And so um, I, this is, I don't think it's at this point meant to just think of the woman as being foolish in this, but that she just hasn't thought through all the implications of, of what this might mean. And that the father is not necessarily all wise and will only do wise decisions. He... He, too, and this bears out in uh, Scripture, who's the guy that, the, the king, that said the next person that comes through the door? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, so, I mean there's, guys can make foolish vows, too, so that's not the point. This is more of just, again, I think you have the individual responsibility to the vow, but then that has to be worked out somewhat in community because we're not just a bunch of isolated individuals making vows, but we're living in community with one another. Yes? It, like I said, it could have been it could have been even vows of worship. Like you could take a Nazarite vow, right? You could you could say I'm gonna go and do uh, not I don't know all the aspects of the Nazarite vow. Um, yeah, you could do those kind of things. And so if if you do that, then you're an individual. You have a right to to do this, right? But these have to be in somewhat connected with your uh, with your family and how that's going to affect your whole family. And the husband has a right to think about the whole household, and so he has a right to revoke these vows. I think it's purposeful that they don't give examples on this. And unlike the, the uh, breaking of the Sabbath earlier where we got a clear example of the guy picking up sticks, this doesn't really give us any specific examples. So I hesitate to tell, say exactly what's going on. I think, again, I don't want to draw too much or too little from this. I think the basic principle is that you act as an individual before God, but you also act in community, and particularly with the relationships within your family. So, um, so I'm sorry, I can't give you more than that. Um, <clears throat> verse 9, but any vow of a widow or a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. So in, in verse 9, the woman is not cut off from the whole community, but she is cut off from her family, right? Either through the death of her husband or through um, uh, divorce, which again, it's very interesting that the, the laws of the society did allow for divorce. And it was a true uh, uh, separating or severing of those, of those uh, ties between them. Okay, let's keep going. 10 through 12. Uh, Mary Dunn, you want to read for me? And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, 
then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day he hears of them, then whatever proceeds out of her, her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. So the distinction between these verses and the ones before is that I think in these she's already married, whereas in the other ones she was carrying a vow into the marriage. Um, I think these are she's already in her husband's house making these vows. Here it talks about a pledge. Um, again, we don't have these kind of laws in our own land, uh, at least anymore, but... Um, you know, if a wife wants to go out and buy a car, she can go out and buy a car, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. Uh, in this scenario, if, if the woman wanted to go out and buy a cow, which women could do, right? I mean, in that, if you read Proverbs 31, they could, they could do all sorts of stuff in the community, buying and selling and doing things. There seems to be a, a, uh, a uh, uh, what's the president? A veto power of the husband at that point on some... You, you did what? You didn't talk to me about this? You know, and he has the ability to stop those uh, if he does it immediately. So. Not, not at the time that she's saying it, but it doesn't have to be like when she, like he could be out working in the field but when he hears of the vow, then he has to make a. There's a different different. That's why I've separate. So so verse nine is verse nine is its own separate thing. A woman, if you're a widow, if you're a divorced woman, this is all bets are off. The community of your family and your headship has been cut off. You're you're primarily just acting as an individual. If you're a. Mm-hmm. So when you get to ten through twelve, it's dealing with a different situation. All right, 13 through 16. Uh, Clark, you want to read for us? Her husband may confirm or nullify any vow she makes or any sworn pledge to deny herself. But if her husband says nothing to her about it from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or the pledges binding on her. He confirms them by saying nothing to her when she hears about when he hears about them. If, however, he nullifies them sometime after he hears about them, then he is responsible for her guilt. These are the regulations the Lord gave Moses concerning relationships between a man and his wife and between a father and his young daughter still living in his house. Okay, so here... Um there seems to be a distinction that these oaths are ones to afflict herself, right? This is, it's, um, it's not just a pledge, but something that's to her own detriment, um, which you can see that, you know, I can see a parent teaching their kid to keep their word even when it hurts. <laughs> you know, you hear that statement, you know, you want them to, bear the consequences of making a foolish vow. And so even if it's harmful to you, you should keep your vow. And I think that's true. But in this situation, uh, upon hearing the vow, the husband still has the opportunity to make it null and void. And in that sense, he instead of saying to her, you can see the contrast, the other times it said, and she will be forgiven. What is the difference in verse 15 in this one? Yeah, he shall bear her guilt. Um, now, I again, I don't want to make too much connections, but have you broken your promises? Think of the promises that you've made to your spouse, to your church. You know, you, we break promises, you know, and there's a sense where Christ does have to bear the iniquity of our failure to keep our promises perfectly. So, um, anyway... Uh, 16, um, these are statutes that the Lord commanded to Moses about a man and his wife and about his father and daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. Uh, 
Um, one way to put this, this connection between these two is that keeping your vow should not split a family. That's a good way to put it, I think. Um, Any other comments on this? I want to just keep going, if you're okay with that. Well, and you should also just realize that um, you should you should really really care about your word because God keeps His word, and that's really really important. At the same time, um, there are limits. To that there's a little bit of a uh, a check on this uh, put within the law you can see how um, just because the uh, you could see how interpreting the law and putting it into each situation requires some wisdom and judgment and so I know for me when I was a young man I just thought, well, the law is the law. The law is always clear. You should never have any question about what's right and wrong. But in this situation, if we don't have numbers 30, then the people who are interpreting you must keep your word, never lie, they would have taken it too far, and they would have, uh, so what's the, what's the commandment? Do not lie. Is that seven? Um, and then but the commandment to honor your father and mother, five, and those two commandments relate to one another. Does that make sense? And you have to see how those relate to one another so that you're not overthrowing one in order to to keep the other. So um, that's not relativism. You know, I know we're so afraid of relativism in our society, and it's not saying that, oh, anything goes, you can just do what you want. There's still the law, but but there's, it just shows that we as people need to uh, look at all the law and try to apply it as it relates to us uh, in our particular situation. It's the whole triad of frame. You've got norm, you've got heart, and you've got situation. And all three of those are important every time you try to understand the law. So, all right. Numbers 31, uh, this, this one is about vengeance, okay? Again, we're going to see how lots of things going on. I'm going to read you a quote here from a commentator that I read. He's uh, talking about Albert Einstein. An ardent pacifist, Albert Einstein wrote, Heroism on command, senseless violence, and all the loathsome nonsense that goes by the name of patriotism, how passionately I hate them. How vile and despicable seems war to me. I would rather be hacked in pieces than take part in such an abominable business. So there, uh, Einstein's got it. In his mind, never fight for any reason. Let yourself be killed. Let everyone else be killed um, around you. That's his position. Um, the what we're going to see here in Genesis, uh, I mean Numbers thirty-one, is something called. Well, if I could spell. Harem. And this is the, the complete wiping out of a whole people. This is a genocide kind of issues. Um, and this is a lot of times why people hate the Bible, because of chapters like this. 
uh, I would say that this chapter is both terrifying and glorious. Many of the details of this chapter uh, relate to previous details throughout the book of Numbers. Uh, Vengeance on the Midianites, Moses' approaching death, the trumpets, Balaam, the incident of Baal Peor, purification after contact with the dead, care for the priests and Levites, offerings, uh, and of course Numbers, the counting issues. All these things are like connected here in this chapter. Uh, Also, just so you know, uh, this is going to be talking about the complete destruction of the Midianites, and yet uh, Gideon is still facing Midianites in Judges chapter 6. So obviously it didn't get worked out completely, um, or they wouldn't be around. So, that being said, let's look at Numbers 31, 1 and 2. Um, Let's have John up here read that, John Avery. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. Pretty pretty, brief. No, that's all I wanted right now, John. You did good. (laughs) Okay, so this this is the last command that we know of in Scripture that God gives Moses. You know, uh... Might have been others, but this is the last one. His last big hurrah in his obedience. And his command is to do what? Take vengeance on the Midianites. Now, let's look at some, turn over to Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18. This is in God's law. Okay, again, we're trying to, remember what we said about, you know, you got, you got norm, you got heart, you got situation. Okay, when every time you think about God's law. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And then, of course, Jesus, you know, takes that in the New Testament. It's, who's my neighbor? Well, Samaritans are your neighbor, and he, like, expands it. So this personal, if the situation is just a personal grudge, the command is to not take vengeance. Uh, in the New Testament, the same thing is given. Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never... That's pretty clear. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. So vengeance belongs to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, so now we're going to, I'm going to give a bunch of verses here, so I'm going to ask people to, to read those. Um, Gary, if you'd look up Deuteronomy 30, uh, Leviticus 26, verse 25. Uh, let's see, I'm going to go over, you guys, you guys okay with reading verses over there? Okay. Um, if you're not, just say no. I, uh, so um, Deuteronomy 32, 35, Shannon, and then uh, uh, Brad, Psalm 58, and then Erica, Isaiah 35, I'll give you the verses in a moment, and you're... Christy, would you do Revelation 6 for me? Okay, uh, uh, Kyle, Nahum, you get the hard one to find, not on your screens, you can find it real quick, right? Nahum chapter 1, and then uh, back over to Lily, Revelation 19, that'll do us good right there. Okay. So, beginning with Leviticus, and you're going to have to be fast, I guess, passing this. Leviticus 26, 25. 
and I will bring a sword upon you and shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. So in this, I'm going to try to interpret these quickly for you guys. In this particular verse, it's basic, God's basically telling his own people, don't think that I can't bring vengeance on you. So if you, if you persist in stubborn rebellion, I can bring vengeance on you. If you flee to a city, it doesn't matter. I can bring pestilence in it. So I can, I can take you out when I want to take you out, is basically what Leviticus says. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Okay, so here, this is, we said it's God personally, but even the timing of it, right? Like God knows when to bring vengeance and when not to bring vengeance. He's, he's the one that determines this. All right, 3241. Stay there, Shannon. I got you for a couple here. Verse 41. Yeah, still in 32, sorry. <laughs> Which verse? Uh, 41, and you're going to read 43 here in a minute too, so okay. keep it there. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Now here's very important. What is the motivation of God? If you, are, if you insist on fighting against God... That means any one of you who, who says, I am going to oppose God. I am not going to submit to his law. I am going to oppose him, and I am actually going to hate God. Then you can expect what? Vengeance, period. It's coming, okay? Um, all right, 43. You got, I don't know if it is or not. Uh, Barry will help you. Just hit that bottom four again. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down, to, bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance of his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Okay, another really interesting thing about God's vengeance is he really, really cares how people treat you. So if somebody treats Gary poorly, God is not going to forget that. And he will, unless that person comes to repentance and trusts in Christ and has Christ bearing that punishment, he will bring judgment on everyone who hurts his children, okay? And we, as God's people, are to rejoice in that. So in other words, sometimes you think about God's vengeance, you think, oh, terrible, terrible. And it is. Um, there's going to be both sides of this. We're going to be appalled by it. Remember I said it's appalling, it's terrifying, but it's also glorious. And it's hard to fit those two together, but that's what's going on. So he's telling the heavens rejoice because God is cleansing the land of evil. Every one of us should have some sense in your heart. I went all evil gone, right? <coughs> Even if it's in yourself, you want it gone, right? You want it to be purged. And God is in his vengeance is doing that. Okay, now uh, Brad, Psalm fifty-eight, ten. That's fine. True community and oneness there. <laughs> the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Woo, now we're getting some crafty imagery, right? The idea of, of all your enemies being wiped out and you just, in a sense, taking your feet and walking through the blood. Almost sounds terrible. And it is terrible. But it's also... Um, uh, helps us to set this idea if you have truly been wronged. You know, you think of the, the, the evils of this world, the true things, uh, um, I don't know, just just horrible things that happen. You can imagine the, the things where people never recover from them, you know, in this life. God will bring vengeance, and he will make things right. And that's the idea you're, you're supposed to understand. Um, Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. All right, see how salvation is connected to vengeance, right? So like he's going to save you, but the way he's going to do it is he's going to bring vengeance upon all your enemies. Okay, so... Um, and you're supposed to wait for that. 
It's not easy to wait for that because we want retribution now. And he says, hold off, wait, I am going to do this right. And it's our task. We can not love those who are our enemies because we just think what they did wasn't really bad or they're not going to be judged for it. But we're called to love them so that through that love, not only are we not being destroyed by hate, but we're also um, maybe, possibly, the means by which God will redeem some to himself. Okay? Revelation 6, 10, and 11. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Okay, so there's a couple things going on here. There are saints who are up in heaven praising the Lord, and they still want vengeance to occur. It's not a sinful attitude to want this to happen. They're told to wait, and it seems that this complete final vengeance will be done all at once. Wait till all of the, the saved people are been saved, and then, and then from that, then God will bring this final vengeance, and that'll be taken care of. But you have to wait, because we don't want to... Think about this. I bet there are people here in this room who have both parents unbelievers. What if God took vengeance out on them at that point before you came along? You wouldn't have been saved. So this idea that that God has to be the one to bring about vengeance in his time is very important because only God knows this. Only God knows whom he's going to save and who he's not going to save and who are going to be redeemed. So without this sovereign knowledge and wisdom of God, um, we just can't bring about the vengeance ourselves. Okay, that's, that's kind of the point here. All right, Nahum 1 verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath from his enemies. Or for his enemies, I have. Do you have for, for or from? Yes, you are right. Okay. And I just think the idea that God's storing it up. He hasn't forgotten. He's not going to, you know, if, if, if the wrath of God is not poured out on Christ, it will be poured out on the people, the individual. So this is, there's a, it has to be poured out because God is a just God. And so there's, he's, that's who he is. He's an avenging God. He takes great you know, as our society uh, apostatizes and cares nothing about God, do you think God just sits back and says, ah, yeah, whatever? You know, as an individual, I can be like, okay, uh, I can't personally bring wrath on people, but I should warn them that God does take it very seriously when you turn away from him, right? Because this is a true wrath and vengeance that's coming. Last one, Revelation 19, 1 to 3. Revelation 19. One to three. After these things, I heard it as it were a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Thank you. So this is it. That's the final vengeance of God is the final judgment. But when you look at the final judgment, there are times back in history where God, in a sense, brings this final judgment back for the purpose, for some redemptive purpose or some, some warning purpose, right? So, so the a first one would have been the flood. I mean, the fact that God wipes out all, everyone but Noah and his you know, family in the flood is certainly there. Um, I think the final judgment is brought back in time to the cross because that's what God is doing when he when he brings his judgment on Christ, 
he is bringing his final wrath upon Christ rather than bringing it on John Avery, which is why Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because that condemnation has already been poured out upon Christ. It's like you've already gone through the final judgment. So that's the, that's the beauty of this, right? But so he brings it back in the flood. He brings it back uh, in Christ. But one of those is going to be on the Midianites. Um, God is going to do that to the Midianites. Now, when God says to do these things, it's instructive to, to help us understand, yes, it's really going to happen. Is it, is it uh, Peter? Where they say that, like, everyone mocks about the, the second coming. Everything's happening as it has since it's always gone on. It's not really going to, there's not going to be a final judgment. And he says, they, they act, they treat the final day just like people treated the flood. Right? So the purpose of the flood was to help us realize that that final judgment has not been removed and your only hope is to flee to Christ. So I think that's what's going on here uh, in the book of Midian. So verse 3, So Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among you for the war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. So what is the, what is the function of Israel at this point? How are they being used? By God. It's just God's arm. It's not their personal motivation. It's not their personal hatred. It's just God says to do this, and they have to trust that, let me ask you this, is the final judgment good? It is good. It may not be what you like. You might not want to be on it. You'd rather be here, right? So flee here. But the final judgment is good. And so this is forcing Israel, can you imagine being in the army of Israel at this point? If you had this sense of your own unworthiness, you'd be like, I don't want to kill the Midianites. I don't want to do this. And yet he's, he's telling them because in his sovereign wisdom, he is telling them this is my act of vengeance, you need to be a part of this. Well, the destruction of the temple is, is way later. The temple's not even been built yet. They're still in the tabernacle. But, but I would argue that um, when the, if you, in the book of Ezekiel is the glory of the Lord leaving the temple and then the temple being destroyed. Um, and so that is, in essence, God's judging his own people. But even in the book of Ezekiel, God holds out this hope of a future salvation, right? So... And this is why it's so different treating, God doesn't ever treat Israel quite like he just treats the nations who are completely separate. He can, he can cut an individual out of Israel and bring vengeance on them, but his, his redemptive plan continues to move forward for Israel all the time. It never ends because he's promised to, do, to save Israel. So, uh, but the, temp, the destruction of the temple would be Israel's lowest point when God's wrath is being poured out on them, and for some Israelites, it would be their final wrath because they're being killed and destroyed. But for other Israelites, as they're experiencing this and they're still alive, it is the opportunity for them to repent. So. Excellent point. So, that's what we're going to do right now. Um, and, and not just because Howard asked, but it's in my notes, we have to start thinking about Midian. And what is, what's the problem with Midian? Okay, so let's start, and we'll do verses. Howard, I'm going to let you look up Genesis 25. And uh, you got your own Bible, bud? Uh, Genesis 37. Uh, Carolyn, Exodus 3. Uh, Ken, Numbers 22. Hannah, Judges 6. And uh, um, Susan, Isaiah 9. So we're going to start, try to look through who is Midian uh, to help us. Now, again, you guys should be happy that you live in the day when you have, um, 
your, your, all your technological stuff, you could probably type in Midian. And you would get all the verses with Midian just like that. And like you guys could become scholars overnight just by then looking how Midian is used throughout the, the Old Testament, particularly leading up to this, but really the whole Old Testament. So Genesis 25, 1 to 4. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letishites, and the Lumashites, or Lumites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were descendants of Keturah. Okay, so what am I going to tell you from this? Keturah has some knowledge. She has some truth at the beginning that God has given promises to Abraham and that God has singled out Israelites. Like she has some truth of this. I don't think we're saying, oh, look, she's not one of the, she's only a concubine or there's lineage. I don't think that's the issue. It's just her and her descendants understand some aspect that God has promised to bring his blessing through Israel. Okay? Uh, Genesis 37, 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so this situation um, is when Joseph is being sold into slavery, and the Midianites are part of this as well. They were just kind of traitors at that time, and they're, they're bringing uh, him into this. Nothing particularly terrible or evil about this. It's just they were the ones that were there. So they have this, again, this connection um, with the Midianites. And if in Genesis 37, the Midianites are also connected with the Ishmaelites. So maybe there's a, something going on there, like who, who where are, where's our loyalty? Exodus 3, 1 and 2. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. All right, so what do we know here? Moses' stepdad, father-in-law, is Midianite. So do you think they have some connection with the, the truth about who, who Israel is and God's people and all those kind of things, right? I mean, they have knowledge of this. Then, Numbers 22.7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. Continue. No, that's good, that's good. Again, we, we've studied this, but it, it was the Midianites connected with the Moabites who are working for the destruction of Israel, both, both militarily and spiritually, right? They, they want to corrupt them. So both of those are going on. Um, Judges 6, 1 and 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. Okay, so now we're jumping ahead, so in the, in the timeline, everything we've, to the, to the present of uh, Numbers, Everything that there was past, now we've jumped to the period of the judges. Um, obviously, the vengeance hasn't been completed, or they wouldn't be there. But here they are. Um, and in this situation, the Lord is angry with his people, and he actually uses the Midianites to bring discipline upon them. Okay, And then verses 13 and 14. Uh, yeah, same, sorry. 
And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Okay. Oh, God, keep going. You're right. Okay, sorry. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Okay, so it's obviously at this point, the Midianites that were here that had the curse upon them, at here, uh, they're being used by God to, to discipline his own people, but then Gideon is given a command to defeat them. I mean, it's like, it gets really confusing, right? I mean, just, and you think about this in your own life, like, he did this, she did that, back and forth, who's right, who's wrong, and I'm going to bring judgment, and all the time, I, I can't, I don't know how Dan does it as a judge, because there's always a backstory, right? You hear about some great atrocity, and then you think, oh, there's something back here, and like, what happens in all this? And so, um, in this situation, Gideon is destroying Midianites to free God's people, uh, because they were disciplined previously by the Midianites because God wanted them to be disciplined by them. So it's, it, it's very interesting. All right, Isaiah 9, 1 to 6. Susan? Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. One more verse? That's good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, you could go for it. That's fine. Um, This is the passage that we think about with... With Jesus coming into the world, right? This is our wonderful, glorious incarnation Christmas one, and it's really about God saying, I'm going to break the yoke of the Midianites over you. Pretty interesting. This is in the time of Isaiah, which would be like way down here, close to when the temple is being destroyed. Um, You know, it's back here. So the Midianites keep coming up at that point. And so this particular curse right here in the present I believe it's because as the, as the um, Israelites came, here's Midian right here, as they came through here and were on their way coming up into Israel, the Midianites opposed them. They, they opposed them. They, they even went with uh, Baal uh, to try to corrupt them. They were not for Israel. And they should have known better because this is God's people, right? They should have known to not do this. What happens then as you move forward, because nothing before the final judgment is actually as complete as what you think it's going to be, right? Um, God is using them here. He's using them there. But at this, the Midianites become a symbol of those who oppose God's people. doesn't matter who they are. You oppose God's people. You want her destruction. You want the church to be taken down. You will suffer for that. Because God takes that very seriously. Unless God wants to save you. Who's the, big, who's the big guy in the New Testament? Persecuted God's people? Saul? And God shows up and says, ah, I'm not going to crush you. I'm going to save you. So God has the ability to do that until the final day of wrath. So, all right, we're going to pick this up again next week. Howard, I hope that gives you at least a start on who the Midianites were. Um, but I would argue the Midianites weren't the only people that did this. There were plenty of other people that did this. And so God, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, says, I'm going to make an example of the Midianites at this time. And that's what he's doing. Similar to Ananias and Sapphira. Aren't you glad that everybody that doesn't lie to the Holy Spirit, ain't one time you're just taken out, but Ananias and Sapphira were, you know, right then. God executed his judgment. He has the right to do that. He just doesn't do it very often because he's calling us to repentance. It's his kindness calling us to repentance. But if you don't have this idea that it's coming, 
You won't ever want to flee that wrath. You won't ever see what Christ has done for you and want to come to him. So we'll finish Numbers 31 next week. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness. And Lord, I admit, I, I cannot even think about dipping my blood in those that you are having vengeance upon or even partaking in it. And yet somehow I still have to say that you are good and you are righteous and your judgment is good. And, and Lord, uh, otherwise there would be no truth and no, no holiness and righteousness ever. We'd never have the hope of that. And I'm glad that we do. And mostly, Lord, I am glad that you are purging our heart by your blood. You are cleansing what we cannot cleanse ourselves. You are, you are making us whole and complete in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.